Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Well, good morning and welcome again to Christ Church. My name is Michael and I have the honor and the joy of opening up the Bible together and trying to facilitate what God might want to say to us through it. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Luke chapter 16. That's where we're going to be hanging out today. Luke chapter 16. Uh, looking around the room, I've, I think I've probably met most of you, gotten to know some of you, uh, but uh, look forward to hopefully getting to know more of you. Uh, I am, by day, a professor of college students at Ozark Christian College, where we uh, try to train up pastors and other leaders of Christian organizations and just folks that want to go to Bible college and train to do whatever. And by night, I am, for the most part, a father of two little children, an eight-year-old girl and a five-year-old boy. And these two things put together mean that I have certain type of experiences on loop, you know, they just sort of come back to me over and over again. Uh, For instance, one of those experiences is uh, trying to explain to younger people why they need to do something in this moment in light of a bigger picture that they can't yet understand. You know what I'm saying? Like if any of your teachers or educators, you know what this is like, you know, whether it's training them, you know, math problems or trying to get them to tie their shoes or whatever it is. It's like, no, you don't understand. I want you to get a job when you're 30. So you need to know how to like say a sentence and whatever. And uh, so it's like that with younger students, like that with the college students, you know, yeah, like I have a lot of these conversations where it's, it's supposed to be hard and frustrating. That's you growing and learning and, and getting better. And it's very similar to the type of conversations that we have with, with children, you know, why can't I eat all of my Halloween candy tonight? <laughs> Well, it's like already past your bedtime, and I don't want the next week to be miserable, and you probably can't understand it. Just trust me. There's a bigger picture. And so I just often find myself having these kind of conversations. But another type of experience that I have regularly is Jesus re-speaking to me the words that I say to my students and my children. You know what I'm saying? Where it's like, hey, uh, do you understand the bigger picture? That is what I'm telling you to live in light of. You know, there's just, it, it happens to me on a regular basis. And I believe, I believe to my core that Jesus is a teacher to us. That he's a guide, that he's a mentor. That not just like somebody who did something for us way back when, but that he's active in our lives in all sorts of different ways. All of our lives teaching us how to live in, in his world under his lordship. And I think that's true for you and I think that's true for me. And I think a decent bit of his teaching is trying to help us make a decision in the present moment in light of a bigger picture that we sometimes have a hard time seeing. And that, I think, is what sits at the heart of Luke chapter 16. So open up your Bibles and let's read our text together. We're going to read the whole chapter. Uh, Luke said, and actually, we're not going to read the whole chapter. First 18 verses. There's a bit next week that we're going to get to later on the chapter. But we are going to read a decent portion of it. Jesus tells a story. And then he gives us some teachings that flow out of that story. So it's fairly typical for the type of thing Jesus does. Here's what it says. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. So this guy was getting fired, right? Owner, he has an estate, he has money, he's got a manager of his stuff, he's about to fire him. Verse three, the manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. And so he called in each one of the master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he said. That's a lot. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. Cuts it in half. Then he asked the second one, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. So he told them, take your bill and make it 800. 
Now the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Then Jesus continues. He says, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now the Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. And since that time, the good news of the kingdom is being preached and everyone is forcing their way into it. Everybody wants a piece of this. But it's easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to to drop out of the law. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. And the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. What a weird story. (laughs) Like what a strange parable. This one's actually fairly infamous for being one of the weirdest stories Jesus tells. Bible scholars used to come up with these lists of what they would call hard sayings of Jesus. Things Jesus says that are hard to comprehend and make sense of. This would always be on that list. Telling a story about a dishonest guy and saying, go and do likewise. This is not the kind of thing you do for your kids. You know what I'm saying? Like, you don't, this is weird. Jesus is the most honest person who ever lived. And yet it looks like, like what's going on? Now, there's a couple of things that are helpful to understand that maybe it's not what it looks like. There's a chance this guy is actually cutting his own commission. Some people think that, that he's been told, you know, to charge this amount and then whatever else you want to charge is your commission on it. And so maybe he goes to these people and he says, listen, you owe what you owe, but I'm just going to cut from your bill the part that you owe me. Maybe that's what he's doing. Other people will say he's, he's maybe cutting the interest. So they owed a certain amount, but then they accrued debt over time as a result of the interest. Maybe he's cutting that off. And that would be interesting because in a Jewish context in the first century world, you weren't supposed to charge interest to another Jewish person. So this owner was actually being unjust in charging interest in the first place. So maybe this steward, is, this manager is sort of cutting off the interest to put his owner in a weird position for firing him. And again, to gain some influence with these people. Or maybe he's just being dishonest. Like, I mean, those are the options in front of us. And I don't even really care or feel a need to determine between them. Because at the end of the day, that's not the point of the story. I actually don't think that this story is very complicated at all. When you understand Jesus told it to make one singular point. He is not saying to imitate the dishonesty of the shrewd manager. He's saying to imitate the shrewdness of the dishonest manager. He is saying, be shrewd like this guy. There's one point to this story. And the point of this story is, look at this guy who made a decision right now in light of the bigger picture. That's wisdom. Look at this man who decided what he was going to do now in light of the long run. He backed up and he understood the situation. And in light of the larger situation, where things were headed, he made a decision that would actually turn out good for him in the end. That is precisely the thing that Jesus points to when he says what to do from the story. That's what wise people do. That's what discerning people do. That's the word that Jesus is calling us to here. It's like, um, I will confess I have no personal experience in such things, but it's like a runner on mile five of a marathon. You know what I mean? Like, how many of you are runners? Some of you run. How many of you are never going to be a runner? There's more of us in the room than the others. But we watch them running and we think, oh, you know what? You know what we do? We don't often think I should go run. We think I should take them a cup of water. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) 
So they're running, and if, you're, if you are a runner, you're on mile five. You are not sprinting. This is why I would be horrible at marathons. You're not trying to beat the person next to you right now. Like, that would be me. I'd be the first one to the one-mile mark, and then I'd be toast, you know? But you're running, and you understand the 26.2 of these things, we've got to pace ourselves, and every step is taken in light of the whole. Or this, this is like a medical student who's just busting their brain to learn a bunch of new, really long words, terms for various medicines and such things. And meanwhile, like every day is just racking up more and more debt. And in the moment, these things don't really make much sense. Most people like don't ever know or, or need these terms. And most people don't ever owe or want to owe this much money. Like, how is this sensible? And they're thinking in light of the long run of having enough money to pay their debt, and of course being the kind of person who can hear somebody come in and say, here's my symptoms, and then they can make a diagnosis that helps the person better. So they make decisions now in light of the bigger picture. That's what Jesus is calling us to do. And it kind of completes, I'd never seen this until last week, kind of completes something, it's almost like a parenting cycle that you see in Luke 14 and 15 and 16. This, this, this hit me last week when I'm listening to Mark teach through Luke 15. So think about where we've been the last few weeks, and I'll summarize it in case you missed either of those. So Luke 14, we looked at a couple of weeks ago, and Luke 14 is intense. This is where Jesus says, anybody who wants to be my disciple but doesn't give up everything they have cannot be my disciple. Anybody who doesn't like hate their father and mother, their brother and sister, their job, even their own life, cannot be my disciple. It's like this very, very intense line in the sand. This is Jesus saying, because I said so, Right? I'm here as the authority, and I'm calling you to follow me. Why? Because I'm here as the authority, and I'm calling you to follow me. Then in Luke 15, what does he do? He tells these stories about how like, God is the kind of God, and Jesus is the kind of leader who would leave 99 sheep grazing in the field to go find the one that was lost, and would not only provide for the child that stayed home and did the right thing, but actually welcomes with open arms the son who runs away and squanders his wealth. So Luke 15 is because I love you. That's why you should trust me. And then Luke 16 kind of backs it up and says, why should you trust me? Because I see a bigger picture that you don't understand. I mean, Jesus is parenting us in these portions of Luke's gospel. Why should I trust you, Jesus? Because I said so. Okay, I get it. That's step one. Can you give me something else? Yeah, because I love you. That matters to know that you have my best interests in mind. That matters to me deeply. But like still, I'm just wrestling with whether or not like what you're saying to me doesn't sound like it should come from someone that actually has my best interests in mind. What gives, Jesus? Well, I can see a bigger picture that you can't see. I can see eternity. That, I think that's the message of this text. Live life in light of eternity. Engage every day in light of the end of days. Recognize that like you are part of a world, you are a person in a world that will go beyond the life that you currently live. That's the, that's the message of this hard saying of Jesus. Now it's hard to do. It's hard to live out. It's not hard to understand. And it's hardly an isolated piece of wisdom. The idea that, that today only makes sense in light of the bigger picture of eternity, I mean, that's, that's consistent. I actually have a handful of, of other passages. Usually I like to camp out in one text, but, but I felt like on this one, I just want to make sure we understand, we remind ourselves this morning, something that we probably know, which is the Bible teaches that your life only makes sense in light of the biggest picture of all. Here are some verses that indicate the same thing. We're not going to look at all the details. Just notice the thread running through these. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says, Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of me. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. He says, it's going to go hard for you if you stay close to me. Yeah, understood. But if you stick it out, then you're going to get 
salvation in the end of this. Matthew 16, he says, Forever who wa- For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Uh, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? And then he gives us the reason why behind this. He says, For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each poor person according to what they have done. Romans 8.18 points to this same truth as an encouragement to us when we're having a hard time. And the Apostle Paul writes, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. 1 Corinthians 15 ramps it up a notch even more. says, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all people. So you may hear somebody saying, man, I follow Jesus even if eternity wasn't real because it's just a better way to live. Paul says, no, it's not. No, like if this is all there is, then we are to be pitied more than everybody. Like that is what we're looking forward to. 2 Corinthians 4, in the next letter to the same people, in verse 16, he says, Therefore we don't lose heart, though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Paul applies the same truth elsewhere to doing good. You ever get tired of doing good to people? So, like, wear you out to, like, take care of the people around you? It's not surprising. Like, it's exhausting, right? Like, that's how it works. Paul says in Galatians 6, don't be deceived. God can't be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. What's he talking about? Look at the next verse. Let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Same truth is applied to grief in 1 Thessalonians 4. And we grieve... We just grieve differently. Look at what he says. Brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. We grieve just with hope. Why? For we believe that Jesus died and rose again and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. I should have warned you, I have 10 of these, so we're getting close, but a couple more. (laughs) Peter writes in 1 Peter, a book that I've heard someone describe as the most relevant book in the New Testament to Christians living in America in the 21st century. 1 Peter 4 says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. These are people who are looking at their lives and realizing it would actually be a lot easier for me if I walked away from Jesus and went back to what I was doing before. Anybody ever feel like that? That's the type of people that First Peter was written to. That's the type of people that the book of Hebrews was written to. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 36. You need to persevere so that when you've done the will of God, you'll receive what he has promised. Four, and then he quotes the Old Testament. In just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. And but my righteous one will live by faith. And I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back or are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. And it would probably be silly not to at least mention the book of Revelation when we're talking about the future. Because Jesus says in chapter 2, verse 10, Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. How often do you just stop and think about eternity? Like how regularly do you back up and ponder the fact that you are a spiritual being with an eternal destiny in God's great universe? We probably do this just about as often as we open up this book and read it closely enough to pay attention. But but here's the thing. While the idea of heaven 
may sound good to some of us. Like we live in a time when this idea of eternity in heaven, heartwarming though it may be to some of us in the room, strikes most of the world as very, very odd. Like our time is more likely to see such things as, as Freudian wish fulfillment or as the childish dreams of a fairy tale ending than they are to actually see these things as a secure basis on which to actually make decisions right now. As an actual vision of the real future, which we might look to as a foundation for determining how to course our lives in the present moment. And they say to a worm and horseradish, the world is horseradish. And to a person living in the 21st century Western world, the idea of heaven just sounds, it just sounds like something out there. Now, I think it's beneficial for us to understand where we are culturally speaking. And you and I live, and I don't think there's any malicious intent for the most part. You and I live at the intersection of some ideas that we need to be aware of. Like the world's story impresses upon us the importance of like the here and now. And so you can be religious if you want to. Like, you can do that God thing if you want to. You can believe whatever you want, like, in your private lives. When it comes to how we're going to organize our lives, just keep the religion out of it. Like, keep the, God, the heaven stuff, the future stuff, the eternity stuff. I mean, whatever. Like, I think you're kind of silly for believing it, but you can believe what you want. Just, like, keep that out of the room where we're actually doing business. Some people say it's like religion's been kicked upstairs, and downstairs we're actually managing what's going on here. And on the other side, and, like, there's, there's, this, there's this current within the church and again, I'm not trying to impugn malicious attempt to anybody, but there's this current within the church where people have recognized that past generations sometimes abuse the idea of heaven. You care so much about where we're going when we die that you forget to care about the world that's right in front of us. And we've seen that, and we've said, no, 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 no. Like, we want to actually like, do something about the world in which we live, and we want to be agents of good and agents of love and agents of life. But, but what's happened is there's almost this accidental sense in which we've re- we're not even thinking about the heaven stuff because we're so focused right here and we're afraid that if we think about that stuff, then we're not going to be any good to what's happening all around us. And the upshot of all of this is that eternity is something that probably most of us believe, but we don't necessarily know how to integrate it into the course of our daily lives. The world says, well, you, you actually, nobody actually believes that this is a world that's created by God, that there's some personal being out there and that we're all going to answer to him at the end of the day. Do you actually believe that? I think most of us would say, well, yeah, actually. Like, I do believe that. But at the same time, I would imagine if we were to look at our habits, not all of them scream eternity. I guess my point is I worry that heaven and eternity have become for us functionally irrelevant. We believe in these things. But they don't necessarily drive our decision-making, you know? Like, why else would we care about whether or not the world agrees with our moral convictions? Why else would we let ourselves get sucked into the political, the, the, the just punch fest that currently passes as political engagement in our world? Why else would we treat each other the way we sometimes do? Ignoring the fact that we're standing in front of a creature who is moving inexorably toward one of two dramatically different eternal destinies. I think when we live today in light of eternity, I think we work with the grain of the universe. I think this is how God made the world to work, but it sure doesn't feel like it. Living in light of eternity may mean working with the grain of the universe, but it also means going against the grain of our age. And it's hard to be weird. Really weird. My daughter's in third grade, which has been interesting. It feels like a pretty significant shift. And we've had all sorts of new conversations, some of which are, what do you do when the boys tell you that they like you? But those are, you know, another story for another day. But we've been talking a lot about, like, she's noticing the differences. I'm the only one in my class who, dot, dot, dot. 
And it's, it's interesting, it's happened a lot with, with language, and, and I don't know how you raise your kids, and for us it's not even so much about these are bad words, these are good words, but it's more like you need to learn how to use language properly, you need to learn how to use, you need to train your tongue. So like, she's like, you know, uh, I'm the only kid in my class that doesn't say, oh my gosh. Okay, well, babe, it's not a bad word, but you're training your tongue. Like in our word, the H, in our house, the H word is hate. <laughs> She doesn't go around saying, I hate this, I hate that, you know. And but she'll come home and she'll say, I'm the, only one, I'm the only one in my school who doesn't say this, do that, watch this. Okay, sweetheart. That's fine. Okay, I'm like, yes, be weird. And I'd like say, we understand, okay, like, but eternity, that's why we're weird. But eternity is a long way away, or at least it feels like it is. It's been 2,000 years and still counting. <laughs> I mean, they made fun of Christians in the first generation. Where's, when's Jesus going to come back? I mean, we're a few generations removed. It could be hard to wait. Man, speaking clear, so Mark's not too pleased about this. Uh, we, we bought my daughter a cat this last week, so we jumped in. Yeah, like, um, I'm not too pleased about it, to be honest, but, like, the worst part is I actually like the thing, you know? So, so now, like, but I guess it's kind of nice. Now I can make the jokes and be offended by them. You know what I'm saying? It's like best of both worlds. Anyway, so we were getting this cat, and we had, we had uh, said, you know, we had kind of put a claim on Some friends of ours had some kittens, and so we put a claim on it a couple weeks ago, and uh, so we're waiting. So clear, like, you know, we told her it'd be a couple weeks, and so she counts out 14 days, and she puts a, like, star on the calendar, and she's thinking about that day, and she's praying for that day, and she's, like, writing letters to the cat and drawing pictures and all this kind of stuff. And she's so excited, and we get to the day, and, and, and it's actually, it turns out it's going to be another couple days. And, and I remember I'm talking to her about this, and she just said, why is there so much waiting in life? <laughs> Like, I know, babe, right? And then I'm not kidding you. I quote, she said, I H-word waiting. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, well, listen, sweetheart, like some of the best things in life, they, you got to wait for them. And, and like, you got to anticipating it now and looking forward to it. Like, there's a big, you got to understand, like, this can be great. But, but the good things you got to wait for and you got to look forward to. And as I'm saying these various things, Jesus is like, Michael, do you hear me? You know what I mean? Because we need to hear the same things. We live in a world where we believe in something we can't see that's going to come sometime that we don't know when. And that can make us feel really dumb at times. And I know of no solution except to resolutely stand firm and not allow our minds to be bullied away from this vision of what we cannot see. Just, just to allow ourselves to be pulled back like a magnitude's true north. Because if we want wisdom to label our lives, then we must always keep one eye on eternity. And maybe this is why the scriptures so persistently draw our attention back to these things. Maybe this is why it was so easy to go find ten verses about this stuff. I mean, that didn't take long at all. It was simple. You could do it too. It's just not that hard. It's just all over the place. And most of them are encouragements. And I think rightly so. Most of those verses we read are about stay the course, you know, don't give up. And I think that's good because I think like most of us are, are, are trying to live our lives in light of eternity. And we just need the Bible to come alongside us and say, keep going. Don't give up. Don't stop. Sometimes we need something a little bit sharper, though. Sometimes we need 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. Well, now there's a twist. Living in light of eternity is sort of like cool and fun to think about. Living in light of judgment day, yeesh, that's a little bit different. It's not just punishment, it's the bigger picture. But there's this sense of receiving what is due, like this final determination of whether or not you wasted your life. 
And I know the language of the parable strange talks about like use your wealth to gain worldly friends so that you could be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Remember, Jesus is using the terms of the story to make a point about our relationship with God. He's saying use your money in such a way, like live your life in such a way that God is pleased so you might be welcomed in, so that he might recognize that you're a person who believes in him. That's what he's talking about. The Pharisees and religious leaders in his day were concerned with wealth. They were concerned with looking good in the eyes of people. Never mind what God thinks about such things. And Jesus says, don't forget about the judge. Man, and if it wasn't uncomfortable enough to talk about judgment, how about the fact that this text is about like living in light of judgment and how we spend our money? (laughs) Goodness. Jesus isn't just being general. He says, manage your money in light of eternal values. Does he mean more than just money? Of course he does. Of course he does. That's the whole point of the last couple of verses that seem out of nowhere. Why are you always sudden talking about divorce and the law and getting into the kingdom? His point is like, I came to fulfill the law and I'm calling you to follow all of it. Like this is a bigger than just your pocketbook. No question. But the focus in this text is on the financial. No question. And maybe some of you think, oh great, church guy talking about money. I feel you, man. I feel you. People will use anything to make a buck, even God. And I believe that deep circles of hell are reserved for those who use God to make money. Who lie and take advantage of us, of people, in order to make more money. I believe that this is a very serious thing, and I pray to God that this is not me. I don't think it is. I'm not talking about 10% of what you do. I'm talking about how you approach all the whole deal. I heard a story one time about this pastor who some new people came to his church and he was talking to them out, outside afterwards in the lobby and, and they, they said, we just need to know, is this a law church or a grace church? And he said, I don't know if I understand what you mean. Like, can you, can you flesh it out for me? They said, well, we, we used to go to this church. It was, they were law church. Like, the way they did things, if you didn't give 10%, like, you couldn't even be, like, a full member of the church. Like, they really it's very, very law-oriented. And this guy's brilliant. He said, oh, we're a grace church. We expect way more than that. (laughs) And that's, I think, what Jesus is getting at. Like, Jesus goes after your wallet. Jesus goes after your budget because he knows if he has your wallet and budget, he has your heart. Where your money goes, there your heart follows. He doesn't say where your heart goes, there your money follows. He says where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. If you evaluate your finances in light of eternity, you will be well on your way to wisdom. And I'm not even trying to be particularly practical. I'm not even trying to tell you how to spend your money today. Like, we're going to keep talking about these things as much as the text does. I'm not even trying to say, buy this, don't buy that. Matter of fact, if afterwards, if you want some prayer, or if you want to talk with some wiser folks around the room, we're going to have elders stationed around the room like we always do. They can pray for you. They can talk you through what this might look like for you. What you buy, what you don't buy, how you spend all these things. I'm talking about the why behind all this. That's what Jesus is saying here. I'm talking about what we know. Which is that our management of the estate probably ought to match the generosity of the owner. Which is that we will actually answer for how we spend every dollar. Which is that if we spend money according to the same values that motivate folks who spend money who don't believe what we believe. Like something is seriously wrong at a heart level. So that's the tangible step. Reevaluate your spending in light of eternal values. I don't know when you guys do the budget. We're about to hit a new calendar year. Maybe you need to look at this thing, not just one line item, not just the tithes and offerings line item, but all of them and say like, how can we use this in light of eternity? And it's not about like we have to use every single dollar on religious purpose. That is so not the point. It's a mindset though that recognizes I will answer to God for what it is that we're doing with every dollar, not just 10 on the 100. You know, it took me a bit to realize uh, what it seems to me like Jesus is doing in this story. And then it hit me. 
What Jesus is doing is he's helping us understand the bigger picture that's taking place every time we scan that card or maybe some of you write a check or do our budgets. It actually reminds me of the story some of you may have heard of in 2 Kings chapter 6. It's about the prophet Elisha and his servant. So here's what's happening at the time. There was this enemy of Israel, the the Arameans, and the king of the Arameans was always trying to attack the Israelites. But every time he would like set up, set, up, set up camp to try to go after the Israelites or like make a strategic war plan to try to go get the king of Israel and his troops, God would tell the prophet Elisha what they were going to do and Elisha would warn the king of Israel and then they would, you know, avoid the trap. They would avoid the situation. And the king of the Arameans was so angry about this and he went to his troops and he's like, which one of you is betraying me? How do they always know that we're coming? And they're like, we're not, nobody's betraying you, but there's a prophet in Israel named Elisha and every time we make a plan, his God tells him what we're going to do. And so the king does what you would do. He says, all right, let's go find this guy. And so he uses his network to locate where Elisha is and he's hanging out in this small village, just he and a servant guy. He doesn't have any soldiers. He doesn't have an army. He's right there. He's vulnerable. And so the king of the Arameans surrounds the place. They surround the whole city with chairs chariots and horses and soldiers ready to roll. And Elisha and his servant wake up the next morning and the servant looks out and sees all around them. They're surrounded and he's freaking out about this, right? He's like, I don't know what we're going to do. And Elisha just wakes up and he yawns, stretches. He's like, hey man, give me a cup of coffee. You know what I'm saying? Like I need to get some prophecy. So, uh, mm." and he's like, no, you don't understand. They're out there. They're going to get us. What are we going to do? And maybe some of you know what Elisha does next. He prays. And he says, God, would you please open his eyes so that he can see that there are more with us than there are with them? He says, look outside. And the servant looks out and he sees along the hills of the mountains, soldiers, horses, angels, chariots of fire. Now that's an encouragement text. This is a warning text that every dollar we spend is spent in a world that is driven by what we cannot see in a future that, whether you believe it or not, is very much on the way. We live among the blind who are not to be imitated. So open your eyes to the future just over the horizon and walk in the dim light of the morning sun. He's coming quicker than we may think. May our budgets be ready. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.